This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Since 1898, Puerto Rico has been a territory of the United States, but Puerto Rico itself is not a state. Even if you're not from Puerto Rico, you've probably heard in the news about legislation in Congress or votes in Puerto Rico on the question of statehood. George Laws is executive director of the Puerto Rico Statehood Council and is an unparalleled expert on where all of these questions sit today and what might happen going forward. We talked to him all about it. Please take a second to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode coming this Wednesday. You can also find more past episodes on our website, pm101.live. Justin Higgins and John Gunnison led this interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. George, I want to start off this discussion with giving everybody a little bit of a history lesson for Puerto Rico and the U.S. and our relationships as a territory and a country. When and how did Puerto Rico become a U.S. territory? Because I don't think it was always that way, right? So Puerto Rico became a territory of the United States in 1898 as a result of the Spanish-American War. The United States at the time was going through a process of basically um, imperial expansion. Earlier in 1898, they'd acquired Hawaii because the United States was trying to become a naval superpower as uh, European colonial powers were, were in decline at the time. They saw an opportunity to you know, grab territory and, and expand our, our geopolitical presence globally. So in the Spanish-American War, the United States basically intervened on behalf of the Cuban people who were fighting against Spain, seeking independence. And they basically promised not to take Cuba when they uh, legislated to, to enter into that war. But at the end of the war in the Treaty of Paris, they basically said, oh, well, we didn't make any promise with regards to taking over Puerto Rico, Guam and the Philippines. So handed over Spain and Spain basically was in a position where they they basically just had to hand it over. And that's how Puerto Rico became possession of the United States. And that's that's basically the history of for the audience, everybody needs to know. George Laws is a mentor of such to me because he was my boss when I worked underneath him for the Puerto Rico Federal Affairs Administration. So these stories and debates that we're going to have tonight, uh, George and I had while we were working, trying to help get funding and equal treatment, which obviously is never going to happen for a territory under U.S. law uh, after Hurricane Maria devastated the island. But John, over to you. Uh, So, George, sometimes the specific power that is the acting colonial overlord has a pretty big impact on how a territory or a country develops. And I'm curious about how the U.S. uh, compares to Spain in the way that they colonized and administrated and governed Puerto Rico. Was it a big difference in the way that the territory was ruled after the Americans won the war and took possession of the island. It was a huge difference. And, and the biggest difference really was kind of the, the national trajectory of the United States at the time, which was kind of increasing in its, uh, you know, domestic as well as international economic and military power. So uh, it was a rising colonial empire, right? Uh, Whereas Spain in 1898 was kind of the tail end of its worldwide colonial experiment. For the first 30, 40 years, a lot of what happened was that American corporations essentially bought 
land in Puerto Rico for, for dirt cheap and became absentee landlords, mostly for the production of uh, sugarcane, which was then exported stateside. So, so that was that was kind of the, the, the first, you know, 30, 40 years. And then in the 1940s and, you know, a pre-war era, the United States really saw that it needed to make a huge investment in Puerto Rico because of the global geostrategic military importance of the island to the United States. And, and that's when you really began to see significant investments coming into the island. And for the audience who may not be aware, the geostrategic importance of Puerto Rico had to do with protecting the Panama Canal, which, of course, is the main throughway for transoceanic commerce for the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast. And in order to protect the Panama Canal, you had to have a position at the kind of entryway of the Caribbean for any potential European aggressor that was trying to kind of, you know, take that over. And that was that was the role that Puerto Rico played. And it was it was very important. We went through a period during the war effort and immediately afterwards that was basically called Operation Bootstrap. And it ended up being a period of industrialization by invitation based on tax exemption. And that's been kind of the backbone of Puerto Rico's economy. And during the 50s and 60s and early 70s, that was great because the world economies that were competitive were decimated because of the war and Puerto Rico was part of the U.S. customs area. So there was uh, no real competition and the, the standard of living average wages on the island just increased ridiculously. But as global competition caught up, and as uh, free trade agreements uh, increased, and then everything that had to do with the, you know, oil shocks and all those things in the in the late seventies and early eighties, we we see Puerto Rico's economy begin to slow down in its growth vis-a-vis the U.S. economy. And in the last, you know, twenty years, Puerto Rico's gone through a very very serious set of recessions and ultimately a financial crisis, which culminated in 2016 with the bankruptcy declaration. So, George, you basically outlined that for 30 or 40 years, the difference in the peseta and the dollar, buying up all this land, I'm sure paying very, very minimal wages to people on Puerto Rico, just decimated the natural wealth of the landed elites on the island. It kept people poor. And then the U.S., began to invest all this money. Did the laws that were the U.S. was using to govern the people of Puerto Rico also reflect this type of economic inequality that resulted in outsiders basically stealing, stealing property and getting a ton of cheap labor? So the laws definitely reflected that. And, and the first law that was passed on this was the Foraker Act. And basically what the Foraker Act declared is that Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, that the Federal government, meaning Congress and the executive branch, basically can govern Puerto Rico without the people there having any say as to what that government was. And at that time, the governors were presidentially appointed. And basically, there was very little influence that the local population had in its governance. They were subject to federal laws, but even their local governance was basically run by federal authorities. On top of that, under territory status, the Supreme Court basically came out with a series of decisions called the insular cases that are now kind of notorious for being based on racist thinking. 
essentially the first set of cases within that set of uh, cases called the, the insular cases was decided by a court that was almost exact same composition as the court that decided Plessy v. Ferguson. The big difference is that Plessy v. Ferguson finally had its Brown v. Board of Education moment where you had the Supreme Court recognize what they did was wrong and say, no, separate can never be you know, equal. Separate is inherently unequal, and uh, we have to stop that. And in the case of Puerto Rico, the Supreme Court instituted a, a doctrine called territorial non-incorporation. Puerto Rico essentially belongs to the United States. It's a possession of the United States. It's a piece of property of the United States, but it isn't a part of the United States. And what this, what this has allowed is to, for Congress and the federal executive to treat Puerto Rico arbitrarily under federal laws and federal programs. And ultimately, what that has done is it has, you know, pushed the people from the island over the course of a century and a quarter, because we're 125 years into this relationship, to leave the island. Current day population of Puerto Rico is 3.2 million. And the current day population of Puerto Ricans stateside is approximately 6 million. So the majority of the people of Puerto Rico have already left the island. They're already living in statehood, but you know it, it's not because they don't love Puerto Rico and don't want to be there. It's because by staying there, they get treated unequally. They don't have full voting rights or representation in Congress, even to this day. And then they lack the same opportunities as every other American in every other state. Wow. When I was working with you in 2017, 2018, I think the estimate was 3.5 million. So that's 300,000 in, you know, four or five years. That's stunning and obviously not a great development. No, it, it is. It is. It's quite shocking. This, when the census figures for 2020 came out, the census indicated that close to 12 percent of Puerto Rico's population had left the island in the prior decade alone. And that's a drop from the 2000 census where we hit our kind of record high of population count, which was you know, 3.9 million. So if, if you think about, about that, there's no other state in the entire country that has experienced population decline that drastic. And the economic implications of that are massive because you decrease your economic demand you decrease your tax base, which means that you have less people paying in to your taxes to support the government system. And, and then you also lose your workforce. And if you think about it, the, a lot of the workforce that you lose are the people who have the best skills and the best training and the best opportunities. Yeah. And so you mentioned that it, there was a great economic boon when we went from an agrarian economy in Puerto Rico to an industrial one. And then all uh, the tax incentives continued to pour not foreign direct investment, but U.S. direct investment into a territory, Puerto Rico. And then there became this kind of economic stagnation. And partly as a result, that is why Puerto Rico is saddled with debt. And then from the debt that Puerto Rico has and the unequal treatment under the law to the Supreme Court that you mentioned, Congress under President Obama created this uh, Financial Oversight and Management Board. So I was hoping that first you could explain that board and the power that Congress took. And then also for the audience, I was wondering if you could give just maybe one example of how, because Puerto Rico is a territory, it's not a state like New Hampshire or Massachusetts, they don't get equal 
rights under Congress. Sure. So the issue with the Fiscal Oversight Board and the imposition of that is kind of the progression of a a cumulative effect of the inequality of treatment of Puerto Rico under federal laws. Because since we became United States citizens, which was something that was done by Congress in 1917 in a law called the Jones Act, there was a sense that, you know, Puerto Rico was kind of becoming more part of the United States. And in 1953, we had a local constitution that was approved and the so-called kind of Commonwealth uh, status was established. Commonwealth is the name of the government of Puerto Rico. It is the name of the government under the local constitution. And while the so-called Commonwealth status gave a full kind of local self-governance to Puerto Rico that was kind of state-like because we have our own governor, our own legislature, our own judiciary. A lot of people thought that we had escaped being a a territory and self-determined. And that didn't end up being the case because we look at the cumulative inequality that Puerto Rico faced under federal laws for all of those decades from the 50s on to the, the 2000s. And what that did is it created local demand by the electorate for better treatment because all of the family and friends that we have moving to the states, they're telling us that, you know, they get better benefits, that the roads look better, that the schools are better over there. So there was an incentive for the local politicians to try to make up for this lack of equal treatment with federal support. And then on top of that, Congress had provided for a carve out that, you know, Puerto Rican bonds or bonds issued by the government of Puerto Rico were, uh, quote unquote, triple tax exempt. So they were exempt at the local level, at the territorial level, as well as at the federal level. And that means that there was a huge demand for those bonds. Basically, the uh, hunger uh, met the, the the food supply, and we ended up with a situation where Puerto Rico's debt just ballooned to a uh, unsustainable rate. And all of that uh, came to a head in 2016 when Governor Garcia Padilla basically declared that Puerto Rico could no longer pay its debts. And and this is something that became a potential structural risk for the U.S. Uh, municipal bond market. So Congress was forced to intervene. And in doing so, they basically decided to set up a process that would allow Puerto Rico to restructure its debts because um, Puerto Rico had been pulled out of the bankruptcy code at the municipal bankruptcy code at the federal level. And in exchange for that uh, allowance to restructure its debts in an orderly way, they were going to set up a fiscal oversight and management board. And uh, that's a group of seven individuals that are appointed by the president of the United States based on people that are recommended by Congress. They essentially get to set the budget for the government of Puerto Rico. They get to override local laws made by the legislature and signed by the governor in Puerto Rico. And they basically get to decide the priorities of the the government of Puerto Rico on a financial basis. So any, any idea that Puerto Rico had, you know, essentially stopped being a territory and stopped being a colony and because we had gained this kind of local self-government power, it went out the window because suddenly you have seven 
you know, unelected individuals making decisions on behalf of 3.2 million American citizens without them having a say or any recourse. And that's basically what's been going on since uh, 2016 with the Financial uh, Fiscal Oversight and Management Board. So, George, we're talking a lot about the consequences of the fact that Puerto Rico is not a U.S. state. And, you know, I've got a question about why Puerto Rico has the status that it has. I'm thinking about how in the mid-20th century, we admitted two new states the last time we admitted any new states. And these are states that on the surface have some similarities with Puerto Rico. They're both non-contiguous to the mainland United States. They're both what you could consider to be overseas territories. And they both have demographic profiles that are very different from that of the mainland continental U.S. And that's Alaska and Hawaii. And so I'm wondering, George, what did these states have that Puerto Rico didn't? Why did Alaska and Hawaii have a pathway to statehood that Puerto Rico somehow didn't share? You know, that's a super interesting and important question to ask. And if you look at the overall facts, you would think that Puerto Rico is directly comparable to Alaska and Hawaii, especially Hawaii. We were acquired at more or less the same time. Like you said, we have a different composition, uh, ethnic uh, composition than the U.S. mainland. We are an an ocean apart (laughs) from the the U.S. mainland. But the big difference really had to do with the instruments, the legal instruments that United States Congress used when establishing Hawaii as a U.S. territory and acquiring Alaska. In the treaty for the acquisition of Alaska, as well as in the resolution of Congress, where uh, Congress essentially took possession over the former kingdom of Hawaii, they they used language that basically indicated in the interpretation of of the U.S. Supreme Court that they were intended to eventually become states, and that's why during the insular cases the Supreme Court drew the distinction between incorporated territories like Alaska and Hawaii were at the time and non-incorporated territories, which included uh, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, and since then now include the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And, you know, really for Puerto Rico, the, the key reason why it was not or the key reason why the Supreme Court went out of its way to create this non-incorporated territory status, which is actually not something that's found anywhere in the text of the Constitution, was quite simple. The Philippines, also a U.S. territory at that time, they had a much, much larger population than Puerto Rico and a much larger population than most states of the Union. And it was feared that if they put Puerto Rico on a path to statehood at the time that they'd have to do the same thing for the Philippines. Although Congress always intended to have Puerto Rico kind of be a permanent part of the United States to keep Puerto Rico in perpetuity, with the Philippines, it was a completely different circumstance. The Filipinos fought a very active and violent war against the United States to gain its independence. And ultimately, the federal government actually uh, granted independence to the Philippines. But the structure that had been decided by the Supreme Court for non-incorporated 
territory status continued applying to Puerto Rico and applies to Puerto Rico to this day. And, and that's a huge break from the way that America did its territorial expansion since its founding. Because every time the United States acquired territory and expanded westward throughout its history, until the colonies that were acquired during the Spanish-American War, the places were established as territories. Eventually, they became populated, they became organized, and they uh, you know, uh, pushed for statehood. And even if it took a while, they eventually were admitted as, as states. And uh, Puerto Rico is the first instance where the United States has acquired a territory made the people of the United States citizens, and then held it in this limbo of territorial status where the people are subject to federal laws. They can't push Congress to change the status. They have no mechanism to to stop the, the territorial colonial relationship. Yet when they have voted for ending the territorial relationship and becoming a state, Congress has ignored them. And, and that's, that's been uh, the case with Puerto Rico for the last, last, I mean, last 124 years, basically. So, George, before we get into any type of legislation that may change this, I'm wondering, in 2020, there was a Puerto Rican status referendum for the audience, and the vote was 52.52% in favor of becoming a state and 47.48% opposed. It was a straight uh, yes or no vote, very straightforward. So does that represent an accurate depiction of the who wants to become a state and who doesn't? Is the island, do you think, pretty equally split? So the, the reality is that vote was the third in a sequence of votes that have taken place since 2012. And the first one, was a two-part vote where voters were asked, do you want to continue being a territory, yes or no? And the majority stated that they did not want to continue under the current territory status. And then the the second question was, which one of the non-territorial status options do you prefer? Statehood, independence, and free association. And statehood won by, I think it was 61%. And Again, in 2017, there was uh, another vote that was held on Puerto Rico's political status, and this one was between uh, statehood, the current territory status, and independence, and statehood won overwhelmingly by 98%, and unfortunately, uh, it was boycotted by those who did not support statehood and supported independence or the current territory status because they saw the poll numbers going into it. They knew that they were going to be beat badly and they just decided to not participate in it. And then they used that non-participation to argue in Congress that the vote was invalid. But, you know, that doesn't make any sense because in any democracy in the world is the majority of the people who show up on the date of election and actually take their ballots and cast them that are the ones that actually decide. If voting uh, doesn't work like that. That sounds almost like a Trumpian <laughs> trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, the the doubt remained in the eyes of Congress and and that's why in 2020 the government of Puerto Rico said, "Okay, we've done plebiscites, two plebiscites with the other non-territorial options on the ballot and statehood has won both of them." Congress still has a question about whether or not an absolute majority supports statehood. And that's why we're going to proceed to do the same thing that Alaska and Hawaii did 
when they were pursuing statehood, which is have a locally sponsored yes or no vote on statehood. And in that vote, the opposition parties actively campaigned against statehood and had a participation rate which was equal to the participation rate for the general election, which was held simultaneously with that. And a, a clear majority supported statehood for Puerto Rico. So that's that's why during this session of Congress, there has been so much more focus on advancing this issue and why we've had so much more activity to address this. So, uh, George, I've got a question for you about these plebiscites. Often when a country is facing a huge question that's existential to their identity and their status as a nation, we have to have a real consensus to understand that we've got a sense of the national will, right? So often the thresholds for referenda in this regard will be set quite high. And then in other situations, uh, they set it at 50%. And they say that if you can get half of the country, half of the territory to agree that this is the direction we're going to go ahead and proceed. And this can sometimes get a bit scary. Like in Scotland in 2014, when they had the referendum on independence, they basically said, look, we've been a United Kingdom since 1707. For 300 years, we've been a United Kingdom. But if half of you decide, then we will dissolve the country. (laughs) The country will be dissolved. And it's extraordinary how close they got to this happening without having a real consensus, a real mandate to do so. I'm wondering, what's the thinking about this in Puerto Rico? Is the understanding that a legitimate plebiscite that gets 50% support would demonstrate a national mandate to pursue statehood? Or is there a desire to try to achieve greater sense of consensus before uh, we have an understanding that this is really what Puerto Rico wants? So, you know, that's a question that's been uh, actively debated both in Puerto Rico and here in Washington. For the purposes of the U.S. Constitution, there is no requirement for even a vote to be held. In fact, some U.S. uh, states were admitted without the local populations of the territory holding a vote. But certainly there's no requirement for anything more than a majority to to vote for that. But what we've seen historically is that both in the case of Alaska and Hawaii, when locally sponsored plebiscites were held and statehood won, the percentage was at a certain level. And then when Congress eventually passed an enabling act actually formally offer admission to Alaska and Hawaii contingent on a ratification vote. So a final yes or no vote being like, okay, we're offering you statehood. Is this what you really want? The percentage in support of statehood in in both cases went up significantly. And the reason is, is very simple. It's because the people had greater confidence that what they would vote for is what they would actually get. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges with the plebiscites that have been held in Puerto Rico, which is that Congress has completely failed in its responsibility to pass legislation to give the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico a final and definitive choice as to what its ultimate political status should be. And for many decades, Congress was even unsure as to what options it should offer. And that's why I think this uh, issue right now is at a historic turning point, because just last week, there was a bipartisan consensus that was presented in Congress where, for the first time ever, 
you had agreement by Puerto Rico's resident commissioner, who's a Republican, and the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, and Nidhi Velasquez, who's kind of the leader of the stateside Puerto Rican faction that basically doesn't support statehood for Puerto Rico and, and is more in favor of either independence or a form of independence called free association. And, and they reached an agreement that they should have a direct vote in Puerto Rico by the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico on one of presenting the three non-territorial options, which are statehood, independence, or independence with free association, and that the votes shouldn't just be a consultative vote where we just kind of find out, okay, is this what people want? And then Congress decides to act. No, no, no. It would be an actual offer of statehood, an offer of independence, and an offer of independence with free association, and each one of those would carry an implementation mechanism. Now, that is completely different than the locally sponsored plebiscites that we've held up to now. And under that framework, it was established that a majority, simple majority of 50% plus one would be the the decider for, would be sufficient threshold to decide what would be implemented. So George, domestically, when Democrats think of the Puerto Rican statehood question, they just assume that Republicans are against it, Democrats are for it. But you've mentioned that Congress has failed for decades now to actually create a bill that is supported uh, broadly to finally resolve this question. I'm wondering what has changed between the intra-caucus dynamics uh, on the Democratic side? Because like you mentioned, Nydia Velasquez and the her faction of the House and Democratic Party have typically been against putting their support behind a bill that could answer this question. Um, and the more moderate members, maybe even more uh, House leadership in in certain instances has been uh, in favor of more of this up or down vote like you're talking about. So what was Nydia Velasquez and her wing uh, initially opposed to and what ultimately ironed those differences out? So in Nydia Velasquez, who was was born in Puerto Rico, but represents a district in New York, so she doesn't represent a single voter that is actually located on the island. She and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who also represents another district in New York, teamed up to present a bill last year called the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act. And, and you know, that sounds great, self-determination for Puerto Rico, right? Everyone wants to support that. That makes sense. The problem is that their bill was premised on ignoring the results of the 2012, the 2017, and the 2020 plebiscites. And they basically wanted to say, that doesn't count. None of those are valid. And instead, we have to start from scratch. And the way that we do it is we say that the legislature in Puerto Rico should have the inherent authority to call for a status convention. And that status convention would then have delegates elected to it. The delegates would come together and come up with new definitions of what they wanted to propose to Congress to resolve the territory status. Those would include proposals of statehood, of independence, and of independence of the free association. But then they included another bucket called and any other option other than the current territory status, which unfortunately doesn't exist because there's no other option under the U.S. Constitution. And, And their proposal basically would have had that status convention group of delegates negotiate with some folks in Congress and then bring options 
to voters in Puerto Rico, have voters in Puerto Rico vote on those, and then bring that result to Congress, and then basically ask Congress to approve it. And and that sounds very participatory and inclusive and all of those things, and, and that's that's all good and great. But the problem is, one, there was no guarantee of whether or not Congress would actually implement any of those results. So you could go through this process two, three, four, five, six, eight years, and then end up with a big nothing burger and Congress kind of rejecting the proposal that was put forward. And you wasted the time of the people of Puerto Rico and you wasted Congress's time. And then the other thing is that it opened up space for options that are readily recognized both by the federal legislative and the executive branches not being constitutionally viable. As far as how those differences were bridged between Jennifer Gonzalez, the the resident commissioner of Puerto Rico, and Nidia Velasquez, really intensive six-month session of ongoing negotiations with the help of House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who was just incredibly persistent in you know continuing to bring both sides to the table. There was a lot of staff work. There was a lot of work directly between the members. And then there were some outside organizations as well as outside academics that presented ideas and concepts for what a compromise could be. And eventually, there was, there was an agreement that was able to be reached, and that, that was what was announced last week. We just heard earlier tonight that the Natural Resources Committee is going to be traveling to Puerto Rico uh, as soon as next week to be hearing directly from people on the island about their bill proposal. And by all accounts, you might have a committee markup uh, sometime in mid-June and and possibly have this bill on the House floor sometime in July. So, you know, things are going to move quite quickly now that we've gone through this extensive negotiation to, to hammer out a compromise. Members of Congress just love going on trips to Puerto Rico, don't they, George? They do. They, they, they never forget great place to visit. You know, <laughs> they never uh. forget their bathing suits. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, it, it is a it is a great place to visit. Uh, the few times that I've been, so that's a Democratic side. It sounds like there is unified support within the party to put the serious bill together, which has been done. It's good to hear that bipartisanship still exists along the lines of BIF, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, and other pieces of legislation working their way through. This can be another exemplary moment in, you know, United States unity and the fact that our government does function. But on the other side of the aisle, I'm wondering what are some of the biggest criticisms or the largest stumbling blocks to get this bill passed uh, through the Senate? Because we've heard, I think, Mitch McConnell come up and say unequivocally that he's not going to support statehood for Puerto Rico. I think John Cornyn uh, also came out and and had some pretty harsh language. What are they just basing this on? Uh, Is it the debt? Is it uh, political? Is it a combination of everything? What do you think are their main reasons that they're just saying, come hell or high water, Puerto Rico's not becoming a state as long as I'm in charge? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, Justin, because if we look at this issue from a historic perspective, statehood for Puerto Rico has had bipartisan support for decades. Uh, on the Republican side, uh, you probably had the most prominent support. And, and, you know, we had people like Reagan who supported statehood for Puerto Rico. George Bush father supported statehood. And, and you've had a uh, Gerald Ford who, you know, actually got a, a statehood uh, admission bill presented in Congress on, on his behalf. So 
There's clear, long history of bipartisan support for statehood for Puerto Rico. But during the last few years, there has been a talking point, particularly employed in the in the Senate, uh, mostly by Senator McConnell, saying that Puerto Rico and D.C. statehood and kind of lumping those two together, it's pure socialism, you know, and basically it's a power grab by Democrats. And and that's a patently ridiculous argument, first of all, because <laughs> um, because how is it giving U.S. citizens the same rights as the U.S. citizens in every other state? That's not even what socialism means to do with <laughs> socialism. Right. Socialism is, you know, having the government basically direct the lives of people and, and, and make choices on their behalf, limiting their rights. So, you know, th- that that doesn't make any sense. But I think it's more of like a political uh, rhetoric for a base that sees Puerto Ricans as a as another, basically, and uh, kind of playing off of their ignorance, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge that, you know, Puerto Ricans are United States citizens, that we've been part of this country for 124 years, that, you know, Puerto Ricans have served in the U.S. armed forces, that we've, you know, shed blood and, and died for defending America's national security and democracy abroad. And, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that that's not uh, something that can just be, you know, put to the side or, or ignored, right? But, you know, the, the, the rhetoric works for a, a certain uh, political base, and it was deployed by, by Mitch McConnell and echoed by several senators. And also, I think it comes from this kind of general common knowledge that, you know, Puerto Ricans are automatically going to vote Democrats if they become a state. So you would tilt the political balance in the Senate uh, if you have two new senators from Puerto Rico and they're both Democrats. And then you would, you know, put more Democrats in the House. And, you know, the reality is that that ignores the fact that in Puerto Rico, we have had Republicans elected to public office successfully, including to the governorship and, you know, two out of the last three uh, members of Congress, resident commissioners that represented Puerto Rico have been Republicans. (laughs) So um, clearly Republicans are able to get elected in Puerto Rico. They are competitive electorally on the island. But I guess that a lot of the members uh, espousing those views are probably thinking more of their view of Puerto Ricans based on people like Nidhi Velasquez or former member Luis Gutierrez uh, in the House who are, you know, very much on the hardcore kind of liberal progressive side of the equation. And they've kind of blanketed all Puerto Ricans under under this false pretense. In my point of view, it's a fool's errand to ever try to predict that any admitted state would be beneficial to one party or the other in perpetuity because the political system is so fluid. and. Yep. The, the political profile of states changes quite frequently. I mean, you know, in the early 1990s, California was a quite reliable Republican state. Uh, and uh, West Virginia was a quite reliable Democratic state. And 30 years later, it's been reversed. Uh, West Virginia went from being one of Bill Clinton's strongest states to being the strongest state for the Republicans in the last two elections. So that, you know, whether it's Republicans expecting that Puerto Rico will damage them, its admission to the United States Senate would damage them, or the Democrats believing that it's going to be some kind of boon in perpetuity, either of these assumptions are are very flawed. And I think, George, one demonstration of the fluidity of 
American politics and the electorate is with the diaspora and really with Spanish-speaking voters in the United States, in the continental United States more broadly. Uh, we know that across the last few presidential elections, uh, Spanish speakers, Hispanic voters have fluctuated between, uh, I, I think, at the very lowest around, what was it, 30% support for Mitt Romney to about 44% support for George W. Bush in 2004. So it seems as though... It, Spanish-speaking, Hispanic voters in the United States are are, are uh, quite a fluid and winnable part of the electorate for many people. And, of course, it's a very complex demographic group when collected across all those Spanish speakers. What about the Puerto Rican diaspora? Uh, how did they tend to vote in elections in the continental U.S.? So, you know, that, that's that's actually super important. And I think that one of the things that's problematic is that oftentimes... Puerto Ricans or even Hispanics as a whole, they're they're talked about as a single like block <laughs> and and they're not. You know, um, we're we're very multifaceted. Um, there's differences across generations. There's differences based on geographic location. And what we see with uh, the, you know, breakdown of those, you know, six million, approximately six million Puerto Ricans that live stateside is that. Voting patterns depend a lot on where they're located, when they came to the states, and in a lot of the places where you have the kind of uh, most consistent and heavy Democratic voter support among those Puerto Ricans, like in New York or in Illinois or New Jersey or something like that, right? It, it is normally uh, people who came from Puerto Rico or they're, you know, parents or grandparents came from Puerto Rico in the, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s. Uh, they came under, you know, dire economic circumstances. They came to get manufacturing jobs stateside. And the communities that they landed in were communities that were kind of dominated by the, you know, traditional democratic you know, political machinery. So they kind of, you know, evolved inside that political culture. And not surprisingly, they vote overwhelmingly Democrat, right? <laughs> Even a couple of generations later. But what we've seen is that with the more recent waves of people moving from relocating from Puerto Rico to the states, most notably to Florida, where right now there's over a million Puerto Ricans in, in that key swing state, they the voters that are Puerto Rican there, they're swing voters, right? They voted for uh, Jeb Bush as governor. They voted for Obama. Uh, they voted for Marco Rubio. You know, uh, they voted for Rick Scott. So they're they're voters that have you know trended you know one way or, or another. And in in Florida, we have uh, probably one of the biggest allies in the House for the statehood movement, which is uh, Representative Darren Soto, uh, who's of Puerto Rican descent, uh, raised in, in Florida. And he's representative of a, a huge number of, of people in, in Florida that have kind of grown up there. But, you know, there's also Republican versions of Darren that, you know, have gotten elected at the local level. They just haven't had the electoral success that he's had up to now. But even right now in, in Florida, in some of the open seats, like the seat for Representative uh, Stephanie Murphy, uh, who's no longer uh, running for, for re-election, 
there's some Puerto Ricans running in the Republican primary for that. So what what that shows you is that the the voters, the Puerto Rican voters stateside can't be taken for granted by either political party. So, George, just uh, this is my last question, I I think, uh, for the night. But the way that I view it, and you're much more of an expert than I am, um, I just had the privilege of working with you for a year and for the governor. um, But the way that I view it is Puerto Rican statehood, unfortunately, has become a political football because of the base of the party, of the GOP, because of uh, the Republican leadership. The fact that Mitch McConnell just seems like he's going to be in the Senate majority leader for 150 years, the Energizer Bunny over there. In an instance, in a hypothetical where the Democrats get unified support, let's say it's 2024, let's say we're looking in our crystal ball, and they do abolish the filibuster, do you think that that might be the best path for Puerto Rican statehood? I do think that the current balance in Congress being so tenuous, it's incredibly difficult and challenging to see uh, a future for the current compromise bill legislation to move forward, particularly in the Senate. Uh, But I don't think it's an impossibility. We just have to have some kind of miracle with Joe Manchin, which is uh, something that I'm sure a lot of other people are hoping for on a number of different issues. But, But the reality is, if we are not able to get this legislation passed during this session of Congress, I think that the work that has been done here during this session, specifically for this compromise, has outlined and made absolutely clear that Congress has a responsibility to offer the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, a final and definitive choice out of this uh, territorial limbo, which has essentially been kind of uh, a jail of colonialism that has held Puerto Rico's potential back. And, you know, the exact circumstances procedurally and politically for how that eventually becomes law and gets through the institutions of Congress, I, I think there's no real way to predict that. Is it necessary to abolish the filibuster to get there? I don't think so. I think that there's enough support for statehood on the Republican side that you could find a way to meet the 60-vote threshold even without the, the the filibuster being removed if if you had unified Democratic support. You know, it, it just depends on how much will there is among congressional leadership and also how much uh, will there is in the federal executive? Because, you know, ultimately the president does have uh, the biggest bully pulpit. And right now our, our president isn't really addressing this issue in any way, has not put any kind of priority on it. And, you know, that's also something that's uh, limiting the issue from being able to reach its full potential. But uh, we're focused on the immediate steps. We're going to you know, get this bill through the committee, get this bill through the House, and then see if there's any kind of Hail Mary pass that we can do later this year, You know, maybe even in the lame duck session. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to George Laws and the Puerto Rico Statehood Council. For past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode coming out this Wednesday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, we hope to hear from you soon.